Singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoy this show, please help me make it better by going to iTunes and writing a brief review for the show, or simply going to our donations page and um, donating any uh, funds that will be used to make it even better than this. Um, today, my guest on the show is Daniel H. Wilson. Daniel is uh, the author of a number of very interesting books. Um, actually, I reviewed uh, one of them about a year ago on singularityweblog.com. It's called Robopocalypse, and it was picked up by DreamWorks, and uh, Steven Spielberg is due to release a movie, as far as I know, somewhere in 2013. So, without further ado, Welcome, Daniel, and thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Fantastic. So, Daniel, I know that uh, from your biography, you are actually a PhD in robotics, as well as being a, an author. So let me start our conversation by asking you this. Which Daniel was first, the author or the scientist? <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up like a lot of scientists and like every uh, author. I grew up reading science fiction as a kid. And, you know, I really wanted to write science fiction when I was younger, uh, but it's really hard to break in. And so, um, you know, ultimately I ended up going to school and studying computer science and then studying robotics. And uh, for me, the science was kind of the next best thing to the science fiction. Um, and in retrospect, I'm really glad that I did. Uh, you know, I, I love robots either way. If I wasn't writing about them, I'd be building them. And so um, I'm just happy I get to be involved in some way. That's that's fantastic. So so let me see. I, I've, I've been reading some of you. I've already read... Um, how to Survive a Robot Uprising. I read Robopocalypse. I read the first chapter of your latest book called Amped. Uh, but let me see if I can try and give you a little bit of hard time here in, in good spirit. Okay. Uh, so if I get it re right, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole idea of how to survive a robot uprising is to, in a way, make fun of Hollywood. Yes. Uh, and movies such as, say, The Terminator, The Matrix, etc., right? So your book is, I find, as funny as, as it is well-written and interesting and actually accurate, but it is, at the same time, hilarious. I, I just love it. So that's totally fine and good. But then you follow up that book with another book, which does exactly the opposite, <laughs> Robopocalypse, right? Yeah. Which takes that... <laughs> broadly speaking, the Terminator scenario. And to top it off, it becomes a major Hollywood movie. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, uh, well, first of all, there were about five or six other books in between How to Survive a Robot Uprising. So uh, I also wrote Where's My Jetpack, How to Build a Robot Army, The Mad Scientist Hall of Fame, uh, Brojitsu, The Martial Arts Sibling Rivalry, and then A Boy and His Bot, which is a middle reader about robots in which the robots are decidedly not evil, um, but yeah, in, in a lot of ways with Robopocalypse, um, I feel like maybe I kind of slipped over toward the dark side uh, <laughs> and became what I was making fun of in, in How to Survive a Robot Uprising. But, you know, Robot Uprising, a lot of it makes fun of, for instance, the, the time travel in, in Terminator or uh, some, of the, some of the goofier stuff, you know. And, and in Robopocalypse, that is, from in my perspective, just as realistic of a robot uprising scenario that you could come up with. Now, admittedly, 
the robot uprising scenario is not likely to happen, and it's a little bit ludicrous just by itself. But if you were going to write a robot uprising scenario, um, I don't know how it would get more realistic than than what I wrote. Um, so you know, for that part, um, yeah, at least I, I stuck to my roots there and uh, tried to make it create as few things to make fun of about Robopocalypse as possible. Um, once you swallow that big pill that it is a, a robot uprising. Yeah. And the fact is, I mean, it's dramatic. It's it's much more interesting it's and exciting. It's creepy. Yeah, and creepy to write about uh, this adversarial relationship that we have uh, with our technology than it is to, to write about, you know, some sort of utopian um, future where there's no drama and where we just love our technology. <laughs> okay, so you, you, you didn't have to go through this kind of a internal struggle for being so inconsistent about first poking fun of the whole thing and then becoming part of it? Uh, I'm not getting paid to be consistent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting paid to write, uh, you know, awesome books. And and Robopocalypse is what was in my mind, and so, um, you know, that's what I wanted to explore. Okay, fantastic. So, let us uh, spend a little time then talking about each of your books, uh, culminating with your latest one. So, perhaps we should start with uh, Where's My Jetpack? Um, sure. it's, it's a book that I haven't read, but uh, I've sort of uh, browsed through quickly, and I've watched a couple of your uh, interviews and your uh, Google uh, authors at Google uh, presentation about it. And it is a book where you do not lament, but sort of demand with that question, where's my jetpack? Yeah, right. I mean, it's, that whole book is really about, you know, where's this future that we're supposed to have? So, so for example, what do you feel when other well-known science fiction writers, such as, for example, Neil Stevenson, the author of Snow Crash, uh, supported by Peter Thiel, come up and claim that we actually haven't made almost any noticeable progress for the last 40 or 50 years since the, the, the lunar landings? I, uh, I hadn't heard that. I mean, I, I, I heartily disagree with that. I mean, the whole point of where's my jetpack is not to be negative. It's not to say, you know, there are other books where, they, where people claim, oh, you know, the scientists have let us down. We don't have all this stuff. But the fact is, all that stuff we wanted, x-ray specs, jetpacks, flying cars, uh, underwater cities, all of that stuff um, in various formats, we got it. And to the extent that it was useful, it became a part of our lives. And, and as a result, it became very mundane to the point that you don't even notice it. You know, I mean, people, as soon as they get the new technology, it just goes right into the background of our lives and we immediately take it for granted. And that's kind of terrible because we live in a wondrous world and we don't really recognize it. But it's also kind of great because we're always pushing ourselves to go forward and get the next great thing. Now, if you're looking at something specific like the space program and more specifically like manned exploration of our solar system, then yeah, you can make claims about um, about progress that we've made or progress that we haven't made. Uh, but if you're looking at technology across the board, then I don't really know how, how Neil would, would make any claims about uh, us not moving forward technologically. Yes. I imagine that his argument was more detailed than that. His argument is very sophisticated, and there's actually a couple of videos online that you, you might want to Google, uh, which is where I, I found uh, my sources. I mean, I saw a presentation of him talking about the lack of, uh, our lack of um, uh, attempting 
any big uh, projects similar to the lunar landings, for example. Yeah. yeah, I would disagree with that. You know, I think that we we entered, especially recently, we've gone into a, a new era of uh, these big prizes, you know, that spur researchers across the board to come up with uh, novel attempts. You know, I'm very, I was very surprised, but I'm very gratified to see the, um, uh, the Dragon capsule docking um, with the space station and to, yeah. and to see that maybe the privatization of, of commercial space travel is going to be a good thing because I was pretty bummed with Obama um, when it came to his, his, the way he was approaching the space program or not approaching it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at something like uh, the X Prize, you look at the, um, the DARPA Grand Challenge with the autonomous vehicles. I mean, they're passing legislation in Nevada to figure out exactly what you need in order to put an autonomous vehicle on the streets. This is going to transform our lives, the infrastructure of our cities. Major, major aspects of our lives are going to change when we have autonomous vehicles. And this is the kind of sweeping technological advancement that comes from uh, those sorts of bold uh, government, sometimes government-funded challenges to the general public. And there's lots of those right now. There are those that apply to space elevators. There are, the, there are uh, prize money that apply to material science and nanotechnology. And, and you know, I, I think that all across the board, people have positive visions of scientific uh, uh, success that they're endeavoring to reach. And, and that's something that Neil, so I spoke to Neil recently uh, at a, a dinner in the Northwest. And that's something that uh, he is is worried about is that you know too much of science fiction is becoming dystopian mm-hmm. and we're not scientists um, positive visions to work toward and I totally see his point on one hand I think you know we might be oh, well he's Neil Stevenson but for me it feels like it might be overestimating you know my kind of impact on scientists <laughs> I don't feel like scientists are scouring through everything I write and going Damn it! I just don't know what to build. You know? Yeah, but then on the other hand, you're much younger than he is, so there is still way to go. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I I would love to to reach a point where he's at, you know, someday if I keep working. But um, you know, to some extent, scientists are fine. They're, they sure they draw inspiration from science fiction, but you know, we're we're not driving that uh, in in any sort of concrete way. So. No, it's true, though. There, there absolutely should be positive visions for scientists to strive toward. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's move on to, to another book then, to Robopocalypse, which we briefly mentioned. Um, perhaps for those of us, uh, of our viewers who are not familiar with the book, I should say that uh, the book, in a way, is about a post-singularity uh, world war where this uh, god-like uh, artificial intelligence called Arcos comes to exist and basically uh, declares war on humanity. But uh, there's no nuclear missiles, there's no total annihilation. In fact, Arcos is, and that's what's very unique about your book, is that Arcos is not too preoccupied with humanity itself. So yeah. would you like to elaborate a little bit why would that be the case? And why not the Terminator, where the sole purpose of the robots is to kill everyone that's human? Yeah, it's absolutely key. I mean, you nailed it. That's, that's exactly what I was going for in Robopocalypse, because over and over and over, I've seen in fiction 
circumstances where human beings are fighting robots and the robots are either trying to wipe out every last human being or they're trying to become human. And in either case, it's pathetic for the robots. Why would the robots be so focused on human beings? And the answer is because it's human beings writing the stories. We're narcissistic. We really think that we're really important. And so we write these stories. And, you know, but if you really think about it, and of course I love robots. I mean, I, I really respect what robots can become. You know? And if you reach a point where you have an AI that's, that's at human levels of intelligence or more, it's its own thing. It's like meeting an alien. And so I don't see any reason that it would be overly concerned with human beings. And I, I respect robots too much to write a story in which they are fawning after human beings, either trying to kill us or trying to become us. And, and I just don't think that's interesting. Um, on a higher level theme, you know, I think that the, the robot uprising theme is all about human beings being afraid of depending on their technology. And so we write stories and we mythologize this, this fear that we have of our own technology dependence. And uh, we write stories where it, that fear is embodied as a killer robot and we fight the robots and win. But it's bullshit because we can't win against technology. We are technology. We can't survive without technology. We exist for one purpose and that is to create tools that continue to keep us alive. So there is no circumstance in which we can go against technology and destroy it and then walk away. And mm -hmm. so in Apocalypse, uh, the story quickly gets more complicated. It reaches a point where we're having to work together with our technology, with these sophisticated thinking machines and tools uh, in order to move forward and to survive. So, um, so if you accept my term in calling your uh, book, Robopocalypse, a sort of a post-singularity or sort of a singularitarian um, book, uh, how is it that, you know, singularity by definition is something we cannot see beyond. How hard it is to write about a post-singularity war or world anyway? Well, you know, I'm not writing about the idea of human beings joining in the singularity. So I'm not talking about people uploading their brains into machines and joining a vast consciousness that's, that's rotating in a Dyson sphere around some star, because who cares? I, I love reading about that stuff. I love those stories, but it's really not what I want to write about because it's not relatable, you know? And stories are about drama and characters and the relationships between the characters. And the instant that you invoke a post-singularity world and you destroy the conventional understanding of relationships where you say, oh, well, there's a thousand daughters. You have a thousand daughters now because she's uploaded her mind into a thousand different machines. Well, it destroys something valuable. It destroys something fundamental about telling a story, which is that a, a, a father loves his daughter. A father will do anything to save his daughter. And it's fun to play with, but in some, in some sense, on some level, it's a gimmick because your reader, until we really hit the singularity, is not going to really be able to conceptualize that. And so you're not going to really be able to tell a story uh, in a conventional way that has a heart in sort of a traditional, you know, the way a Shakespearean story would have a heart because you care about fathers and, and sons and, and wives and husbands and things like that. So, you know, true, Robopocalypse starts with a singularity, but the characters don't partake. The characters are still living in the same world. And in fact, Arcos is largely inscrutable. 
as a, as a, and it's really hard to determine whether he's good or bad or agnostic or what, you know. And so as you go through this book, it's really about human beings and what they'll do to survive in a world that they can't understand uh, because this singularity has happened. Uh, so let me ask you this then: How about I? I want to take a couple of your themes here, but one of them is the way you tell the story, because you have a very sort of dirty, clean, on one hand very simple, on the other hand very dirty, sort of down to the bone, very gritty style of telling the story. It's very visual in a way. It's, it's, it's almost like painting pictures. So what kind of tips would you, would you have for uh, our viewers who might be aspiring writers, for example? Sure. I mean, it's so funny to be asked this because it's like, it's, it's just great. I mean, I love it. <laughs> the, the, I guess at some point I made a transition where people are asking me how to write and that cracks me up. But, uh, you know, one thing that I've noticed in my, in my writing is, is you're right. I, I'm really visual with it. So I picture it in my mind and I describe what I'm seeing. And uh, I think that just grows up that that comes from me growing up playing with GI Joes and you know, having them act, and enact little scenes and battles and stuff and then just describing it. But one thing I found is that sometimes you get to writing and you realize that you don't really have it securely in your head. You're just sort of writing to describe, you know, you start writing a little more loose and it gets a little fuzzier because you can't picture exactly what it looks like because you don't have those details. And when that happens, you know, you need to like stop and go do some research so that you, you know, look, find some images, read some other people's descriptions of, of going through whatever it is you're talking about, because, you know, it's not a one-to-one -one mapping, but the reader can tell whenever you're not able to visualize what you're writing. And so, you know, I can tell when I go back and read what I've just written and I go, well, I don't know where the person is standing. I can't tell you exactly what this place looks like, you know, and you don't have to describe everything. It's, that's another hard part, you know, is figuring out the minimal amount you need to describe in order to sort of conjure up what, wherever and whatever is happening. But, you know, my advice is write about something that you can visualize um, very clearly. And if you can't, then go do some more research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking about visualizing then, um, how much can you tell us about the, 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 the movie? You know, not much. I mean, um, I can tell you that uh, you know, Steven Spielberg is directing it, and it was written by Drew Goddard, who just wrote uh, The Cabin in the Woods and, and wrote a lot of really terrific Lost episodes and Buffy episodes. And I can tell you that both of those guys are, are true robot nerds, that they really love robots. Um, and I vetted them. The guy that, that went to school for robotics, I vetted those guys, and they're, they're legit. Um, you know, so the, the film is supposed to shoot later this summer, according to, you know, articles that I've read. And it looks like it's on track. You know, I think that there should, I hope that there will be some casting information very soon. Um, but there's nothing public yet. And the actual release date was pushed back to 2014. And I was, I had mixed feelings about it because I'm so excited about seeing this movie, which was originally slated to come out July 4th of uh, 2013. Yeah. But I think what happened was Avengers came out um, on, I think, April 25th, and it did so well in that slot that um, they went ahead and re 
they, they uh, pushed Robopocalypse to come out on the same date as the Avengers did this year wow. uh, in 2014. And so on one hand, it's kind of a relief because, you know, since they're going to be shooting it to tail into this year, mm-hmm. they're going to have a whole year to ramp up all the marketing and to go to Comic-Con and to go to uh, all these places and show footage, you know, up front and, and really do a lot of uh, work on the post effects and the CGI and everything. Yeah, yeah. So, th- I mean, honestly, a lot of this movie is going to be about the post and, and that's where I'm really going to try to jump in and, and potentially have some input. But, you know, I'm not, there's no guarantees. And, and I, I really had my creative input by writing the book. And so I have no expectation there. Um, but of course, I'll be first in line when it, when it does come out. Oh, I'll be in that line too. But uh, <laughs> let me ask you, what's What's the most exciting thing or what's the best thing ever that happened to you uh, with respect to the movie? The thing that like really blew your mind? Uh, uh, well, I mean, the, going and meeting the filmmakers was incredible, right? I mean, that's just really special to just be in a room with those sorts of intellects and just being able to just talk robots and kind of get swept up in it. But the the coolest thing probably was was at last year's um, San Diego Comic Con, getting to to meet uh, Spielberg and, and Peter Jackson well, right before they did their Tin Tin panel, and then we had this moment where we kind of walked through. It was me and them and lots of other people and 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 got security guards, you know, these sorts of guys, and uh, we we kind of walked right through the middle of Comic Con. We went down this big escalator, and then on the other side, you have all these people coming up the escalator. And just watching all those double takes, as people realized it was like this one-two punch of Spielberg and Peter Jackson, uh, you know, like demigods of, of Comic-Con. Um, that was really special and just like amazing to watch, to see. And then also to see the people that were looking at their cell phones and missed it, you know, who were, who were literally two feet away from these guys and didn't look up in their cell phones and just and missed out and had no idea who they just went past. I mean... That was pretty cool. So, so do you feel the pressure, though, uh, in the sense that, I mean, uh, you are perhaps from the youngest generation of science fiction writers at the moment, uh, at least to my awareness, and then you have people like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Werner Vinge, Robert J. Sawyer, Charlie Stross, Cory Doctorow, uh, Carl Schroeder, um, Neil Stevenson, and... And yet, your movie, your book, got picked up to be a Steven Spielberg DreamWorks movie. So, do you feel like, oh my God, the next book I write has to be like really amazing, or I'm now? No, you know. So, so in fact, uh, Spielberg, you know, DreamWorks bought Robopocalypse after I had written a hundred pages. So, I had to actually write the rest of that book um, after having interacted with them and knowing that they were waiting. And they were, in fact, urging me to hurry up. <laughs> um, they, they really wanted the next pages so that they could get started writing the script. And, and, and actually, they started writing the script right away mm-hmm. and doing CG and stuff based on just the 100 pages. And so, oddly enough, it never occurred to me that I was under pressure. And I don't know if it's just some sort of particular brand of stupidity that I suffer from, mm-hmm. but I, ha- I find it very difficult to, in the morning, when I'm sitting there with coffee, writing my book in my favorite coffee shop by myself, 
no pressure, nobody watching, nobody. I find it very hard to conceptualize this notion that people are, you know, waiting on the, on these words or that a lot of people are going to read these things. That's just so abstracted from the actual act of sitting down and writing every day. And And the fact is, I don't write beautiful words of wisdom every morning. You know, I mean, sometimes I write crap all day and I go back and whenever I edit, it's, I just go, oh, geez, this is a this is all gone. This is just crap. And other times I go through and go, wow, I, you know, I, I thought I wrote really just crap that day, but th there's a couple of really great things in here that I can build on. So, you know, no, I don't really feel, I didn't feel pressure on that. I didn't feel pressure on, on Amped. Um, and, and, I'm, and now I'm writing Robogenesis, which is the, the sequel to Robopocalypse. I just sold that uh, last week. And I don't really feel pressure either. I just feel excited, you know. Um, they're going to make their own movie, and they're going to take their favorite parts. And so there's no pressure on me to word-for-word word, uh, write something that Spielberg is going to turn into a movie. I just have to focus on writing my books and, and doing what I love and uh, writing something that I'm going to love. And then, and then they'll do their thing. Well, I was planning to ask you on that a little bit later, but because you brought it, could you share a little bit more about the Robogenesis before we move on to Amped? Sure. Well, um, you know, my website is danielhwilson.com and it has my, my email address. So anybody listening, anybody watching that uh, has demands about the, the sequel, <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts on that. So yeah, feel free to, uh, to contact me. Um, so, you know, I wrote a, in order to sell that book, I wrote a few chapters and I uh, wrote a really detailed description of, of what I want to do um, with it and which characters I want to bring back and where I want to go. And so uh, I, a lot of it was picking and choosing who I really love. From, who you want to kill and who you want to spare. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you have people like Matilda and, and her brother Nolan and, and 902. And I just, I could never, ever let go of them. Takeo, Takeo uh, I could never let go of Takeo Nomura and Makiko. Um, they're just really dear to me, you know. They're dear to me, <laughs> uh, too. Yeah, they're, they're very they're moving. Other, there are other questions, there are other characters that I could uh, potentially let go of. And and I'm really planning on exploring Arcos a lot more and the notion of this singularity and and whether, uh, and what it means for him to, his embodiment, you know. He had a pretty easy embodiment in the first one. He was embodied as a little boy. It was very creepy, but he had a, a main location where he was. He was, he was buried under the ice. And, uh, and it was pretty simple to focus on. And I think it's going to get more complex in, in the next book. And we're going to see different incarnations of Arcos. And, and his grand scheme, I think, is going to become clearer. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, I hope to write a third book, you know. <laughs> so, oh, so it's a trilogy. Fantastic. Well, ideally, you know, I mean, I'm not committed to a trilogy yet, and uh, that'll all depend on whether people want to read it, you know, and, and that's as it should be. Yeah, and, and then, therefore, that also means that if the movie is successful, as it most likely yeah. will be, there would be the second book turning into the second part of the movie, etc., etc. That's fantastic. Well, you know, I haven't seen, I haven't read the script, you know, so... Um, I actually don't know what happens in the movie. I know from inferring, I, I know which locations they're shooting at uh -huh. and things like that. So mm -hmm. based on that, I know which characters are, mm -hmm. are going to be there because the characters are all over the world. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's, 
there's Afghanistan. I'm not, I'm not saying where they're shooting, but uh, in the book, there's Afghanistan, Japan, London, yeah. uh, you know, obviously United Oklahoma. States, different place. Yeah, Oklahoma, where I grew up, <laughs> uh, Alaska. So, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those are going to be in the movie. And so I know kind of which characters, but I don't know really what happens. Um, mm-hmm. And I know they had to simplify it a lot. So yeah, what's good is that I sold this second book without ever reading the script for the first movie. So the second book is very true to the first book. Mm-hmm. I am going to read the script before I finish writing the second book. So I will be able to, if I want, make take that into consideration. But it's good that I have a control variable, you know, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So let me see if I can bring your newest book in the following way. Um, in a way, all of your books are a discussion or a conversation about the relationship between humanity and technology, right? I right. mean, in uh, Robot Uprising or Robopocalypse, it's external to us. And as technology is getting miniaturized and getting smaller and smaller all the time, it is going to become literally part of us. It already has become literally part of some of us, at least. So your next book is called Amped. What would you like to tell us about it? It, The book only came a couple of days ago, otherwise I would have read it. Uh, And I'm planning to read it next week, actually. Uh, so, you know, Amped is, uh, it's about what happens when our technology migrates into our bodies, you know, and I, I feel like we've been co-evolving with our technology for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, we are really, as human beings, shaped by our technology, uh, fundamentally, I mean, on an evolutionary level, and we're reaching this amazing milestone where we're becoming technologically proficient enough to put it inside of our own bodies, and so to me, this feels like a real milestone, and it's going to have a lot of real social consequences. Um, and so that's the area where this story takes place, is uh, the, the 10 years into the future, 20 years into the future, when this is starting to happen and society is reacting to it. And so it tells the story of a guy named Owen Gray, who's a school teacher, who happens to have a neural implant, and uh, it's called an AMP. And people that have these amps are sometimes called amps um, themselves in kind of a derogatory way. Uh, and what happens is the government, people start realizing that these implants are making people with disabilities smarter than able-bodied people. Mm-hmm. And they start to realize that the writing on the wall says pretty soon we're all going to have to get an implant if we want to compete um, in, in a new society. And this is something that is common to technology. If you want to compete in modern society, you have to have a car. You have to probably have a smartphone at some point if you want to, if you want to really engage people uh, on, on every level that, that they engage each other on. So this is no different, but it means you have to put it under your skin, and that's a big deal for people. And so the government passes a law that says that uh, people that have AMPs are not a protected class, and it basically opens the door for legalized discrimination as yeah. kind of an un- unintended consequence. And so we follow the story of Owen Gray as he is displaced from society, from his place in society, and uh, violence erupts on both sides, and the nation kind of spirals down toward a civil war, and uh, Owen has to do everything in his power to kind of try to prevent that, and to save the lives of the people he cares about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
I mean, that, that, that's fascinating. I did read the first couple of chapters of the book already, and they're very gritty, very, very gritty, very moving. But what, what I want to ask you is about your term. The, 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 the word that you chose is amped. Why not transhuman or posthuman uh, or cyborg or something uh, uh, like that? I did not want to invoke all of that. I did not. Those are words that, uh, you know, every word is really just a signpost to a lot of shared context that we all have, you know. And, and to say the word transhumanism or posthuman or anything like that, it just brings in a whole lot of very distracting context that I didn't want to have as part of my book. Mm -hmm. This book is about people. It's about uh, a kid going to school and having other kids pick on them because they've got an amp, you know, and trying to deal with that. It's not about some kind of super-powered uh, future where people are, you know, it's not deus ex-men, as, <laughs> as came out in a previous interview. It's, there's, no, there's no deus ex component. There's no X-men component, really. Um, I just wanted to keep it very grounded in reality so that you could really see this, you know, so that you could really focus on it. And, and I love reading science fiction that throws everything into it, you know, just big, like China Mieville, just sort of like big, crunchy worlds where just everything you can imagine it could be there is there. But for my own writing, I find that it, to, to get across my themes, and, and maybe I'm just not smart enough, but I like to show a world that is very recognizable and very similar to our own, but there's maybe one or two things that are different. And then as the reader, you can really intellectually examine this and look at it from different angles and go, yeah, that makes sense. No, that doesn't make sense. You know, oh, that's a surprise that that would happen. But thinking about it, it's obvious, you know. So, for instance, in this world, uh, the people that have implants have a little sort of maintenance port that's on their temple. So other people can discriminate against them when they see these things. So regular people start changing their hairstyles so that you can see that they have a smooth temple and you can tell that they're pure human. And it's, and, you know, little things like that, little social, cultural things yeah. uh, sort of pervade society. And, and, you know, that's the kind of really fun um, thinking that, that I like to put into, into my works. Mm -hmm. so, so let me ask you this then. In a way, your story, if I get it right, asks the question, and, and I want to ask you if you can also give us the answer without uh, surrendering the ending. But the, the question is, does technology make us more powerful or more vulnerable? Yeah, well, both, right? I mean, th this, is, this is what I love as a, as a storyteller, you know, as a guy. I mean, because ultimately I'm, I'm writing a story that's supposed to entertain you and make you think, right? Mm -hmm. And this is just... The wonderful thing about writing about technology is that every day the stakes go up because we, our technology becomes more powerful and we become more vulnerable and more powerful. And, and what it really boils down to is whether we are good or evil. Are we going to be good and go to the stars and, and transcend, you know, uh, you know, are we going to leap out into the future and do wonderful things and explore the universe and, and get off the planet? Or are we going to, or are we evil? Can we not be trusted with this technology? Are we going to destroy ourselves? Are we going to do terrible things to each other? And, you know, the answer is that we're going to do both because we're, we are good and evil. But ultimately, you know, what, which way do the scales hang? Is it 51, 49 good 
5149 evil. And this is a very basic, fundamental uh, type of drama. You think about Adam and Eve walking out of the garden of, you know, tasting the tree of knowledge and being thrown out of the garden. And, you know, it's like we're on our own out here. <laughs> we, we have the knowledge that we have and we're going to use it and we have to trust ourselves to, to be good. And, and ultimately, I do have faith in humankind. I think that we, we are mostly good. And I think that we can be trusted to use our technology to transcend. And, uh, and that comes through, you know, in the book, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So let me see if I can take this to the very personal level of Daniel H. Wilson, then. Imagine a world where I am amped, all of around us are amped, and we're all writers, and you're competing against us, right? Because you said when you compete, you know, etc., etc. Would you amp yourself? Because clearly, just like that girl who went to school and suddenly returned and was the best high school student of all the city or something like that, right. suddenly from Daniel H. Wilson, fantastic writer, you would barely be able to compete with the rest of us. Mm -hmm. So would you amp yourself? And, and if yes, under what circumstances? Yeah. Is that good enough for you? You know, I, uh, I, I would absolutely utilize new technology to stay abreast of the rest of society. I do that now. I drive a car. I have a smartphone. I'm talking to you on Skype. I did not know what Skype was, you know, five years ago. Now I have figured it out and used it because I have to, because mm -hmm. you did, because a million other people did. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the way technology pulls us all forward sometimes kicking and screaming. And, you know, if it reaches a point where a neural implant is what I need in order to be a part of society, then that's what I'll do. And there is a mental hurdle there because you're talking about technology going into your body. Mm -hmm. But I really do think it's just a mental thing. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It's no different than the progress that technology has always taken. And in, in that case, then, how late in the game would you wait yeah. before you make that leap is the other question. Because I painted a picture in which you're kind of really, really towards the end. But what's the, the, the time of leap that you would choose for yourself? Well, you know, I think that this is all about how old you are. You know, um, I really do believe that. I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal last year uh, in 2011 about this, about how people form models uh, of how technology works and how we get uncomfortable when mm -hmm. new models show up and new technology arrives. And the younger you are, the easier it is to uh, incorporate this new technology into your life. And so as you get older, I think it really becomes more of a struggle to force yourself. And, and if you don't force yourself, which is a totally reasonable option, you sacrifice uh, membership in, in society on some level. You if you're not on Facebook, if you refuse to buy a computer or an automobile or, or a bill, you know, you're making a sacrifice. And so, you know, I will be probably second in line. I'm not going to be getting first gen implant technology as soon as it becomes elective. If I had a serious disability, I would, I would be all over it. You know, uh, of, of course, as most people would, you, you want to use assistive technology. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the meantime, you know, I, I, I'll hold out. You know, I, someday, <laughs> going to be very, you know, you still hear about authors now who write out their books longhand, right? 
And uh, I can easily imagine 30 years from now telling people, oh, I still write my novels on my, on my laptop. And of course, they've all got implants and they think their novels, you know, directly into, into the uh, internet or whatever. And they'll be like, wow, that's interesting, <laughs> old man. You know, so, but that's okay. You know, that's the way it goes. It's natural. We all get to uh, occupy our own spot on that uh, on that conveyor belt, depending on our age. Fantastic, Daniel. We're approaching the end of our interview, so I just want to take a minute here to um, invite our viewers, um, guys. If you enjoy the show, please uh, help me spread the word for it. Uh, and as I said, you can do that in one of two ways. You can simply go to iTunes and write a very brief review of the show. Or you can go and make a donation on our donations page on singularityweblog.com. Uh, now, going back to Daniel. Daniel, uh, you've already mentioned it, but perhaps you should repeat it. Uh, is your blog the best place that people can follow you and learn more about you and your books? Sure. So danielhwilson.com is a great place to, uh, to just find everything else that I've got. So, you know, if you want to go... Check out Wikipedia or IMDb entries, or, or if you want to come see me on Facebook or Twitter, then uh, Daniel H. Spot. And I have lots of little short stories and things that come out as well, you know, that things that don't make such a big splash. And so, uh, you know, if you want to keep up with everything. So, for instance, the first chapter of Robogenesis um, is going to be coming out in an anthology uh, oh, wow. pretty soon. And so, if you want to be up to date on that, and it, and I love it. I love this first chapter. <laughs> it's the anthology. So wrapping around that, um, it's, it's really fun. That's fantastic. Okay, we have a little bit of a, a spike, downward spike on the, on the broadband here, but I think it's, it's improving. Um, so the very last question that I always ask of my guests here on the show, Daniel, is this. Do you have a single message or the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away for the, from this half an hour that they spent with you today? Uh, you know, if I had a message, it goes right back to Utah calling me out for joining the dark side and writing dystopian science fiction um, after having been in, in the robotics industry and everything. You know, uh, I just want to tell people that technology, I think technology is great. But I also think that, you know, with great power comes great responsibilities. So it's fun and uh, worthwhile to read science fiction and to really think hard about how technology is going to affect our lives in the future. That's fantastic. Daniel H. Wilson, thank you very much for taking time to be with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah.